Let's pray. Father, I don't think there's one of us here who can't relate to the idea of mercy. When we've done something that we know offends another person or even you, we know that the thing that we ask for the most is mercy. God, as we are making our way through the book of Jonah right now, we're going to see that this theme of mercy, this theme of your grace is front and center when it comes to our lives and our propensity to run from you. So Lord, as we spent just a few moments right now reviewing this story and reviewing also the incredible mercy that you show us, I pray that our minds and our hearts would be prepared now to look into and dig deep in your word that you would speak to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and his precious name. Amen. Well, as I've mentioned, we're in week two of a five-week series on the Old Testament book of Jonah, and we've entitled the series, Born to Run. And last week, you might remember, we opened up this story that we're all familiar with from childhood by simply noting that God has given a specific call to a guy named Jonah, a prophet in the nation Israel around 780 B.C., to travel to a foreign nation that hadn't heard about God yet and tell them to turn to him or else. This foreign nation is called Nineveh, where modern-day Iraq is, and it was the thriving capital of Assyria back then, and it was a very decadent country that eventually fell due to its decadence in about 612 B.C. And now this sort of thing is not uncommon in the Old Testament. Do we all understand that? That God would choose a particular individual to profit, to give a word, even sometimes a tough word, to the nation Israel or to an erring nation around them. It happened all the time in the Old Testament, even at times in the New. But in this particular case with Jonah, it very quickly takes a unique turn because instead of listening to and obeying God's call in his life, as we know, Jonah does the opposite and he runs from God's call. And I don't want to spend any more time this morning on introduction. I want us just to dive right in and continue with part two of last week's look. And so if you missed last week, look up here on the screen. We're going to catch up real quickly. And here's the point that we left off on. And that is that Jonah ran from God. And we all have a tendency to run from God. And that's kind of the cliff notes from last week. Jonah ran, and we all have a tendency to ran to run. And so look with me once again at what Jonah's knee-jerk response was to this awesome call of God to be a part of helping lost people find him. Look at verse 3 of Jonah 1. It says, But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And all I can tell you is that this is not the normative response of prophets in the Old Testament, right? Like they normally didn't do this. They normally didn't run from God's call. And yet I suggest to you that that's what this makes this book so relevant and even practical to you and me. You might remember that I suggested to you that when you look very close at verse 3 here, you notice that Jonah is running from God and to something else, right? He's running from God and to something else. So he's running from God's face, from God's intimate and truthful activity in his life, and to anywhere that he can get away from God. And for Jonah, as we know, this is going to be like changing geography. 
to a different geographical place, literally leaving the town of Jerusalem and heading out onto the Mediterranean Sea, trying to get to this place called Tarshish, a faraway place from God's original call. He's running from God. And so we ended our discussion last week by simply noting that all of us then have a tendency to run from God. All of us. And to help you along with this, I gave you four examples, four ways or methodologies that I find that many of us today try to run from God. We run through unchecked behavioral sin patterns, or we run through avoiding relational intimacy with God, or we run through saying no to His clear call to us, or we run by withdrawing from fellowship with other believers. So many ways that we run. I just noted four examples at the end of last week that many of us are just like Jonah in our running from God. Truly, I have yet to meet somebody, folks, ever in my life who at some point in their life, in some way or another, has not run from God and his call on their life. One of my favorite historical runners that I'm going to kind of weave his story in and through the rest of our time here together was a guy who lived back in the 1800s by the name of Francis Thompson. Francis Thompson. Some of you poetry buffs know that name. Thompson was born in the mid-1800s in England in a very large Catholic family. And his father was a prominent doctor in their town and really wanted one of his kids to be a Catholic priest. So he picked young Francis. But Francis really wasn't cut out for the priesthood. His father had doubts as well. But when Francis was 18, sent him to the seminary to study to be a priest. And it didn't take very long for the headmaster to realize this kid's not cut out to be a priest. So he wrote a letter to his dad and he said this. He said, I've been most reluctantly compelled to concur that this is not the holy will of God that he should go on for the priesthood. I quite agree with you in thinking that it is quite time that he should begin to prepare for some other career. If he can shake off a natural indolence, which has always been an obstacle with him, he has the ability to succeed in any career. The only problem was is that Francis Thompson from that point did not shake off this natural indolence that he had. In fact, from this point on, at the age of 18, he went on to make a veritable mess of his life. And I mean an absolute mess. He tried to get into the, be a doctor, but he failed the medical exams five times. He failed as a book salesman. He failed as a shoe salesman. Then he enlisted the, in the army and he was discharged for being unfit. He then sold matches on street corners. He ran errands. He held cabs for pedestrians. And he became such a shabby bum that he eventually was not even allowed to enter into a public museum in Britain. I mean, he just went downhill for the next decade of his life. Made a mess of it. Utter failure. He eventually became addicted to laudanum, which was opium back then, and they used it for painkillers, and he, in a sense he got addicted to, to over-the-counter to prescription drugs. I, I mean, Francis Thompson just made a mess of his life. Some of you are here this morning thinking that you've made a mess of your life, and maybe you have. Maybe your marriage is in trouble. Maybe your finances are a train wreck. Maybe your kids are rebelling. Maybe your emotions aren't working right and depression and anxiety are kind of rearing their ugly head. I just want to tell you that you're going to have to try really hard to make as much of a mess of your life as Francis Thompson did. I mean, it's just true. A real mess. And yet one of the reasons that I told you I like him as a runner is because even in the midst of all the mess of his life, he knew who he was running from and why. Isn't that interesting? 
St. Augustine said that, that all of us have a God-shaped vacuum inside of us that can only be filled by God himself. Francis Thompson knew that. He knew that there was something inside of him that was made from God, and through all the mess that he was making of his life, it was really God that he was running from. I'm going to finish the story a little bit later, but he would go on to write one of the most profound poems of the 1800s called The, H 1800s called the Hound of Heaven. Look up here on the screen. Let me read you how this poem begins. It says, I fled him, meaning God, down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the Lambertine ways. Of my own mind and in the midst of tears, I hid from him, and under running laughter of vistaid hopes, I sped. Now, what's going on there? Amidst all the outward circumstances of his life, Thompson knew he was really running from God. He knew that it was God who made him for himself, and through all the things that he did in his life or didn't do, that it was really God that he was running from. And through poetry, he became very good, as we're going to see, at communicating that to us. The point is this, folks. All of us have a tendency to run from God. All of us, believer and unbeliever-like, it's part of being living in this fallen world. It's a part of being a part of God's straying flock. And I'm going to finish off that story later. But once we've understood all of this, our ability to run at times, I believe the key question and issue that we then need to deal with is what does God do when we run from Him? Have you ever thought about that? What does God do? What is His response when, as many of us owned last week, we have this tendency to run from Him? But what does he do? And this is exactly, by the way, what the rest of Jonah 1 is going to talk about and show us what God does when we run. And I think it's going to surprise many of us. But we read the story for you earlier in our worship, and it's chock full of images of what God does when we run. So let's review the action. As you might remember, the story begins that as Jonah is running from God, he goes to the seaport of Joppa along the Mediterranean Sea. And he finds a ship going to a faraway land called Tarshish, far away from where God told him to go, and he pays the fare and he gets on board. And then a huge storm arises. And this storm is so big that even the rough and tumble sailors, who are used to all kinds of storms on the Mediterranean, are scared. And so we got to assume it must have been one big storm. The text even says that it threatened to undo the whole ship. And because all people tend to be spiritual in nature, having something inside of them that tells them that God exists and, in real, and is real, these sailors begin calling out to God and their own conception of God for help. Please see this, folks. It is quintessential foxhole prayers. I mean, these sailors were not church-going men, right? I mean, they weren't reading the Bible daily in their devotional life, and they certainly weren't attending a Wednesday evening prayer meeting. But they're going to form a makeshift prayer meeting right now. Why? Because they're scared. And when human beings, even as irreligious as they might be, get scared, they usually, in their own rudimentary fashion, reach out for God. So that's what they're doing above deck. And meanwhile, while they're having this prayer meeting above deck, where is Jonah? Do you guys remember? He's down below deck, right? And what is Jonah doing? He's sleeping. That's interesting. Commentators wrestle with what does that mean? I think in our modern day world with our understanding of depression, we kind of get that, right? 
I mean, Jonah's most likely very depressed and very discouraged. I never met a happy person when they're running from God, right? So he's running from God. He's not very happy. He's kind of depressed and discouraged, and he's sleeping below deck, and the captain finds him, calls him a lazy bum. That's in the margins. And then he tells him to, to get with that ecumenical spiritual program that's happening above deck and start to call out to God as he understands him. And while all this is happening, now above deck, the sailors decide to cast lots. That's kind of an ancient version of throwing the dice. And they want to see who is the one that God is after and causing all this mess. And wouldn't you know the lot falls on Jonah. And when they question Jonah about this, the whole thing comes out. He tells them that he is a Hebrew from the nation Israel, but not just a regular citizen. But it seems from the text that he tells them he is a prophet who has heard a call from God to do something and that he's not going to do it. And he further tells them that this God is not just some man-made God of their own conception, which is, I guess, Jonah's form of witnessing to them, but that he is the God. He's the Lord Jehovah who made the heavens and all that it contains. And these sailors, who though uneducated, are no dummies. And they put this together. And they realize, we got a real-life prophet on our hands who has ticked off a real-life God, and we're caught in the crossfire. That's what they realize there. And so not wanting to tick off God anymore, Jonah says, well, why don't you throw me overboard to get me and God out of your way? But the sailors don't want to do that. They're reluctant to throw Jonah overboard because they don't know what God might do. And yet after exhausting all of the other options, they decide to save their own skins. They toss Jonah overboard, and as we know, the storm ceases. Jonah is then swallowed by a great fish. We usually think it's a whale because that's the biggest fish that we know of, but the text just says a great fish. And the sailors now turn to God as best they know. They offer sacrifices and make vows to him, as we'll see in a minute, most likely assuming that they wanted to follow and seek God as best they could. And with all of this, chapter 1 ends. With Jonah having been swallowed by a great fish and the sailors now happy that their lives are no longer in danger. And though there's a lot of things going on in this opening chapter of Jonah 1, I mean the boat, the sea, the sailors, depressed Jonah, other gods, casting lots, prayers and repentance, uh, the key thing that I want you to notice for our theme of running, and this is so important, folks, is where God is in the midst of all of this activity. In other words, let's not miss what God is up to and where he is while all this is taking place from when Jonah originally begins running back in Jerusalem to when he is eventually thrown overboard in the middle of the Mediterranean. And to get this, let me show you a couple of verses that kind of tell us exactly where God is. Look at verse 4. It says, And the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Interesting, the Lord. Not just indiscriminate weather patterns being talked about here, but God himself was in the weather and in the storm. Hang on to that, and then notice verse 17. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Interesting, there it is again. The Lord appointed. So it wasn't just chance that this great fish was there, but God himself was guiding and causing this monster to be there at the exact time and place that God wanted him there. And so twice we see there, once toward the beginning of Jonah's running, and then toward the end of it, that the writer of Jonah makes very clear that it was God who was front and center in all of this activity. Do you see that there? 
It's not by chance, not by accident, not by natural law, but the God of the universe, the maker and creator of all, who is intimately and intricately involved in this world, he made the sea do what it did, and he appointed the fish. He was right there, right behind Jonah, through it all. And then, as if this were not enough, we even have evidence that Jonah knew this about God all along. Seen in the way that he describes him to the sailors. Look at verse 9. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Focus on that little phrase, God of heaven. That phrase is an interesting phrase. It only occurs 22 times in the Old Testament. And yet it occurred all the way back in Genesis 24 when it was first coined by Abraham. And what you need to know is that it's a phrase that connotes God's sovereignty. It describes the fact that he's the God of heaven, the maker of all, in control of all, 100% involved in this world of his. He rules from heaven. I like how Leslie Allen, a professor of Old Testament at Fuller Seminary, talks about this exact phrase in this exact verse. He says, and I quote, it identified God as the supreme deity, the ultimate source of all power and authority. He says, by this title, God is presented as no mere local deity, but to one whom all people may look to for help. God is sovereign. He's everywhere present. He's the God of heaven, and Jonah knew it. He knew it all along. He knew that God was right behind him, right with him, even in his running. So add all this up, folks. God was in the sea. God caused the great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah knew this. In short, God was right behind Jonah the entire time. As he traveled down to Joppa, as he selected which boat to go on, as he was sleeping in the cabin, all hiding and depressed, as he was having to explain to the sailors why the storm was raging there, God was there right behind Jonah, chasing him, trying to get his attention. And the reason that this is so important for you and me today is because many, if not most of us, don't realize that this is where God is when we run from Him. We really don't. Now, the way I hear Christians talk is I get the impression that we think He is way off in the distance where we left Him when we began running, waiting for us to make the long trek home back to find Him. When in reality, He is right behind us simply wanting us to turn around and face him. And this is so key, folks, to the storyline of Jonah, to see where God is when we run from him. Where is he? Look up here on the screen. It's point two. God is right behind us when we run. He is right behind us. I, I want to do a little exercise to show you this kind of a, in, a, in, in a little pictorial here that, that I think will bring it home to you. It's going to be simple, but I think you'll get it. And uh, for this, I need a volunteer. Lee, come on up. Great. He knew I was going to pick on him, I think. And uh, so, so this is Lee McGavin. And uh, Lee, how long have you been here at Scottsdale Bible? Six years. About six years. And uh, you stayed even though I came, right? I did. Sweet. Yeah, I know it was a coin toss for me too. And, uh, and you sing in the choir. I do. And it's really cool. And you're in a Bible study I lead too. So it's awesome to get to know you and your wife, Lori. All right. So step on over here, Lee. And uh, here's what we're going to do. Um, this is going to be a stretch for everybody, but I want them to pretend. I want you to pretend that you're Jonah, okay, and that I'm God, all right? This is going to be really fun. I know. I, it, it's really a stretch, but you're Jonah, and I'm God, 
And right now where we're standing, this is Jerusalem, when God gave the initial call to Jonah. And I want us to also pretend that that microphone then way over there on the other side of the stage is, say, the middle of the Mediterranean, uh, where Jonah eventually runs to. So you got Jonah and God here in Jerusalem, and uh, he goes down to Joppa, gets on the boat, and the sailors and the storm eventually gets thrown over, swallowed by a whale. That represents the other side of the stage. And we know that Jonah ran over to that place. So in just a second, I want you to run there, okay? And when you run there, I want you just to stop when you get over there, wherever you want to stop, and don't do anything else until I tell you what to do, whenever you're ready. All right. Turn around right now. And where's God? Right behind me. Right behind you. Give your appreciation to Lee. All right. Very first time I ever did that illustration, I picked a teenager. Big mistake. And the reason was is because this teenager, I ran behind him and chased him, and I said, turn around, and I said, where's God? He said, right in my face. <laughs> it was actually great. And I thought, yes, that's right. This is what the end of chapter 1 of Jonah teaches us, that when we run, he runs after us. Did you see that? He chases us. Why? Because he loves us. And though we don't realize that he's chasing us because our backs are turned to him, if we would just turn around and face him, which is what we're going to see later on today and then next week, he's right there. Don't miss this, folks. On a relational level, there's no long trek back. There's no having to work really hard to find him. There's no penance. There's no massive spiritual hoops to jump through. There's just turning in authentic faith and relational courage just turning toward God. And what you need to know about this aspect of God that as far as I can tell is consistently applied to all of us who run is that it's all about His grace. Many people don't think that the book of Jonah is a book of grace, but yet i got to tell you, that's about all I see in this book. As many of you know, the commentators on the Bible, those who spend a lot of time studying and then writing about it, tend to point out issues that are kind of debatable, things that could go this way or go that way. And uh, one of the exegetical debates concerning Jonah concerns this imagery of the uh, storm, the raging storm. What's the image of that? And they wrestle with, is it punitive or is it restorative? In other words, is the storm punishment or is it love? Is it God just angry with Jonah and out to get him? Or is he simply doggedly determined in his love and his grace for Jonah to get his attention and to get him to turn back to him? And though there are some commentators that will go either way on this, I tend to think it's a no-brainer. It's about his grace. It's about God's desire for Jonah to turn around and to realize that God is chasing him with the loving passion of a father who chases a runaway child. The storm, the casting of the lots, the tossing overboard, the great fish, I think were all vehicles of God's grace. They were the actions of the God who was chasing behind Jonah, right behind him all the time, trying to get his attention and get him to turn back to himself. And though these were all drastic measures, to be sure, and ones that brought lots of pain to Jonah's life, we need to see that as well, because many times God's stubborn grace is that way. Drastic running calls for drastic wake-up measures on God's part, and they're not always comfortable. And sometimes His grace, did you know this, comes in the form of painful discipline. But please see, it's nevertheless about His stubborn and constant love for you and for me. 
You see, one of the big distinctions that the Bible makes is between discipline and punishment. Discipline is always about restoration and love. Punishment is always about wrath and just deserts. And you do find both in the Bible. And yet sometimes God's grace comes in the form of discipline, even allowing and causing us to go through difficult times in order to wake us up for our need for Him. And all I can say is that if you've ever been, been through a, a storm of the soul in which you realize that God in His loving discipline is chasing you, you'll never be the same again. It'll mark you for the rest of your life. As many of you know, I, um, I, I became a Christian uh, in the early 1980s. Unlike some people, I know the exact date. I became a Christian on March 11th, 1981. I, I'm not a big fan that everybody has to know the date. I don't think my kids have any idea when they became Christians because most of my kids kind of just sort of slid into home plate somewhere between five and eight or something like that because we raised them in a Christian home. Uh, but, but I know the date that I accepted Christ because I was not raised in a church-going uh, evangelical Christian home. And so uh, somebody shared Christ with me during my junior year of high school. It was very real. I was very uh, drawn to Jesus, and on March 11th, 1981, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But one of the reasons that I sometimes waffle about that date is because uh, my life didn't change very quickly. In other words, the moment that I accepted the Lord, I started to run from Him in many ways. That's why I'm familiar with those ways we talked about last week. I started to run from Him by continuing in very sinful behaviors that I knew were not right for me. Uh, peer pressure in high school was big for me, so I continued to drink and continued to party and do things that I knew were not a part of my new faith. Um, I avoided relational intimacy with God. I didn't read the Bible a ton. I didn't pray like he was coming back tomorrow. I withdrew from fellowship at times, not going to Bible study or the campus life events that I was to go to. But yet at the same time, I had one foot in as well. I would go to Bible study. I would engage once in a while. I would read the Bible. I would pray. But I was kind of what we might call a nominal or casual Christian. Some would argue I wasn't saved, but I really believe I was. I know my heart. I accepted Christ at that time. But I was running, like Lee running across that stage. I was running from God. And yet, you know what's interesting? When you are truly a Christian, truly saved, and running from God, is that you're miserable. Is that the storms rage in your life and your soul. And all I can tell you is during that 18-month period from March of 1981 to November of 1982 when the dam finally broke, is that I was miserable during that time. I wouldn't have let you know it, but I was feeling guilt, which is a good thing. I was feeling a lot of conviction, which is a good thing. And I was feeling a lot of misery when it came to my life and my walk with God, which given my life was a good thing. I was running from God during that time. And you know what also happens when we run from God and you're truly one of His? Is that there's a build-up effect over time. Have you ever experienced that? Where you just can't run forever. In other words, it builds up, kind of like that old jack-in-the-box that we used to, you know, twist and eventually it pops out. It's like you twist it long enough and it just builds up. And by November of my freshman year of college, after doing plenty of sinning, it just built up too much. And one night, November of my freshman year of college, I sat at my parents' kitchen table at two in the morning after a night of partying and I said enough enough is enough I read half of Matthew all of Philippians and I said God my life is yours I turned in that moment from running from him and I just said my life is yours it will never be the same I'm all in that's it and truly my life has not been the same I call it my recommitment to Christ we do that around here as well 
Now, the reason I tell you that story is because I want to ask you this, that when I turned that night to God after running from him for 18 months, do you think that he looked at me and said, well, good luck finding me. I mean, good luck trying to find your way back home. I mean, you left me way back there 18 months ago. Hope you find your way through all the mess and run back. No, God didn't say any of that. That night that I turned to God, you know what was amazing is he was right there. And I realized, like we showed with Lee, like we're seeing in Jonah, that even in the midst of all my running, God was running right behind me. And even in hindsight now, I look at so many of the events and I see his protection, I see his provision, I see people he brought into my life. I mean, God was in those storms. God was in many of the things that I thought were mundane or even difficult. He was chasing after me. Truly, folks, he is what we call the hound of heaven. He's like a hound dog that when his scent is onto someone and that someone is you, look out. Because like the hound of heaven, he's going to hound you. When we run from him, he runs after us. His grace is leading the way, and by all possible means, he's going to get our attention. I told you I was going to finish Francis Thompson's story a little bit later. Let's do that right now. We left off with the first stanza of his poem where he just describes the fact that he ran from God. He had an interesting life. The decade after he spent making a veritable mess of his life, he eventually found himself on the streets and he realized he just was going to write poetry, a very good poet, about his running from God. Wrote his most famous poem called The Hound of Heaven on the Streets of England. And he thought in a last-ditch effort it might be good to try to get this thing published. So in the winter of 1887, he sent this poem into the minor Catholic literary magazine called Mary England to the editor, a guy by the name of Mr. Wilfred Maynell. And when Maynell received this parcel, it contained an essay and some poems, and here was the cover letter that was written by Francis Thompson. It said, Dear Sir, I'm enclosing the accompanying article for your inspection. I must ask pardon for the soiled state of the manuscript. It is due not to slovenliness, but to the strange places and circumstances under which it has been written, like the streets of England. He goes on to say, I enclose a stamped envelope for a reply regarding your judgment of its worthlessness as quite final. Apologizing very sincerely for my intrusion on your valuable time, I remain yours with little hope, Francis Thompson. And then I kid you not, he says, P.S., kindly address your rejection to the Charing Cross Post Office. That's the letter he wrote accompanying his famous poem, The Hound of Heaven. Well, that was not the most scintillating cover letter you're ever going to read, and so Maynell took it, and he, he kind of deep-sixed it for about three months in a pile of all the other stuff that he had to read. Three months later, he was sitting in his office, bored, and decided to pick up and read some of these poems. And he read The Hound of Heaven, and immediately he recognized a poetic masterpiece. Being somebody who was also in tune to God, he recognized somebody who knew what it was like to run full blast from God, have God chase him, and then have him turn back to God. Let me read for you just a little bit more of the poem. I left you off when we were talking about how Francis Thompson runs from him. Look up here on the screen. He goes on to say, From those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray me, who, or betray thee who betrayest me. Uh, still, with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, came on the following feet, and a voice above their beat, 
not shelters thee, who will not shelter me? What did Francis Thompson learn in his running from God? He learned that God, in the beat of his feet, and his voice to him was running after him. He's the hound of heaven. The story has a rather good ending. Francis Thompson uh, would go on to be discovered by Mano. He, he would even receive applaud from people like Robert Browning of his day, a great poet. They cleaned him up, got him off his opium addiction, and uh, he went on to become one of the greatest poets of the 1800s. Died at the age of 47 of tuberculosis, but he accomplished an awful lot in just 47 years, most of them seemingly wasted. Folks, running from God is going to be part of living in a fallen world at times. We saw that last week. But what I need you to see this week is that the good news is that he runs after us when we run from him. And all we have to do is turn around and face him. The very thing that at least at this stage, Jonah was reluctant to do. And we really need to see that. Next week, we're going to explore how Jonah turns and finally runs to God. But, but do you understand that at the end of chapter 1 here, there's this huge contrast between Jonah, who's running from God and refusing to turn to him, and these pagan Phoenician sailors who almost know nothing about God. Their ignorance is obvious. And isn't it interesting that chapter 1 ends with them turning to God? Go figure. I don't know if you caught the progression here, but look up here on the screen. They go from not caring to fear, to interest, to understanding, to prayer and repentance. So it starts off in the chapter with them like being pagan is pagan. We don't care about anything like that. To them being afraid because of the storm. Then to having some interest in God because of those foxhole prayers. Then to understanding him based upon Jonah's witness to them about the God of heaven, the sovereign supreme one. To them, them repenting and praying to him and making vows to him. You know, commentators argue about whether or not they really became like Old Testament saints in the Yahweh-Jehovah kind of way, and it's doubtful, at least from the text here. But at the very least, don't miss this, they turned. They turned, and they were at least, at the end of this chapter, seeking God in their lives. That's what happened with these sailors here. And what that teaches us, don't let this escape you, is that God has a passion and heart for all people. Not just airing sheep who are already in his fold, though as we've seen he chases after them, but he's also chasing after everybody else around you. Those that don't know him yet, that he wants to know him. He tells us in the New Testament that he desires all people everywhere to turn toward him. And he's not given up on anybody. Jonah doesn't turn, but the pagans do. Go figure, so the way things are. Let me wrap up this morning by simply asking you a question. A couple of them, actually, and it's this. Are you running from him in any areas of your life? Did you identify something last week or even today of where you can own and be honest about your running? And if you are, the key question today is do you realize where he is when you run? Because I'm here to tell you that he's running right after you, that he's with you. Jesus said that if he had 100 sheep and one of them ran into the wilderness, what did he do? He ran after him. This is good New Testament theology as well as old. And all you have to do is turn. Next week, I've entitled our message, Running to God. We spent two weeks looking at running from God. Next week is running to God. Jonah is going to teach us precisely how we turn, 
what causes us to turn, and what we do when we turn. But for right now, what I need you to process with me, and just to get through one more week, is just to simply ask yourself, do I run? And when I run, do I know where God is? Like Jonah, can I say, he is the God of heaven, the hound of heaven, right behind me when I run. If you do, you're going to be perfectly set up for chapter 2 next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, in a wonderful progression, this story that we're reading leads us through this whole process of understanding our running. Lord, one of the things you know I've been trying to do, hopefully not too forward, is just trying to get us to see that all of us, when we're honest with ourselves, tend to run from you. We just do. I know I do, and just about everybody I meet. And Father, I thank you that when we run, we've learned today that like your servant Jonah, you could chase us. You're in the storm. You're in the casting of lots. You're in the whale. You're in all the difficult aspects of our life, and it's your grace leading the way. It blows our minds that, Lord, you could be in such difficult, even mundane and difficult circumstances of our lives. So, Father, I pray that if anybody here today needs reminding of that or even the revelation of that, that it would hit home to their hearts, that they would realize you are the hound of heaven and that you chase after every one of us in this room, every one of us who are watching this on the Internet, you chase after us. Lord, next week, give us great understanding as we learn from Jonah how we turn and how we run to you. And for that, we'll do it, and we'll give you great praise. And we thank you in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.